Dear Lord, as we now come to your word, we pray that you would use it to strengthen us in our faith, that you would use it to grow us in a knowledge of who you are, of what you are, of what you're doing, that you would help us to see you more clearly, your works here on this earth, and that we might be agents of redemption as you have called us to be. We cannot do that without the truth of your word, so open it to us even now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning, we're going to be in the book of John, chapter 5, verses 18 through 29. So you'll begin turning there. This week, as I was going through this passage... It, uh, like most things, I began thinking about the tie-ins to uh, that it has to one of my favorite stories, and that's the story of Middle Earth and the Lord of the Rings. And and I began thinking of the character Strider. And Strider is a ranger. Uh, he's a uh, he's the central character of the books, but you don't really get that until later in the books because early on he's called Strider. He's this uh, ranger, he's a protector of the northern part of the world there, but he is also king over Middle-earth. He is the heir to the king of men, but there aren't very many people that know that. He's essentially king over all Middle-earth. However, he had not yet ascended to his throne for several reasons. But he would play this major role in the War of the Ring and in the story of the of redemption that we know as the Lord of the Rings. And again, seen as a wanderer, as a protector of the Shire, but few people in the world knew him as he really was. The king of all men, the one who would finally overthrow the darkness in the world and bring peace back to Middle Earth. And so in much the same way, as we come to this passage about Jesus, Jesus is prophesied as the one who would come and bring order and peace and unity back to his creation, which had been and has been ravaged by sin and the fall of man. And again, much like Aragorn, not everyone sees Jesus as he really is, the Son of God. King of Kings, Lord of Lords. You know, I've seen a T-shirt, and I was I was in youth ministry for ten years, and saw lots of strange T-shirts. And one of them that I saw often was the T-shirt that said "Jesus is my homeboy" on the front of it. And so, for, for to me, this is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Even in the name of Christian T-shirts, if that's a thing, Jesus isn't one to be handled lightly. And what you do with him is the most important thing you can do in your life. So to say that he's your homeboy is is kind of missing the whole point. There is no life outside of Jesus, not because he's your homeboy, but because he is God, and he alone can deliver you. So today we're going to spend some time looking at this passage that spells out very well who Jesus is, not as a person, 
but also who he is, or not just as a person, but also who he is by his nature. We can't simply take Jesus and say, well, I don't like all that theological mumbo-jumbo. I just want to know who he is. That's great. But what Jesus do you know? What do you know about Jesus? So today we're going to be looking at the Jesus of the Bible, the true Son of God. We'll consider three points in doing so. Jesus is the Son, or Jesus the Son is God. Jesus is not the Father, and Jesus must be worshipped as God. So as we do that, let's stand together and read the text. John chapter 5, verses 18 through 29. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that, son, that the Son does Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves, and the Son shows him all that he is, himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives, life, gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes, believes him who, has, who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here where the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those will, who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Amen. This is God's word. You have a seat. So the first point is, Jesus the Son is God. Look there at verse 18. Very plain. The text makes it clear that to call yourself the Son of God is to equate yourself with God. This is what the people were upset with Jesus about. It wasn't that Jesus was saying these things and, and we have later attributed deity to him, everyone who heard him speak believed that he was attributing deity to himself. He was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. He says that he can only do what he sees the father doing, and he does whatever the father is doing. So think about that. He can only do what he sees the father doing. And have you ever considered that? God is constantly working in the world. God is constantly working in our lives. But do we ever see what he is doing? 
We see things as we look back. We trace the steps of God, so to speak, in our own lives, and we can see what he's done as we look back. But we don't actually see his work in progress any more than we can see the wind blow or the sunshine. We simply see the effects of them. However, the text says that Jesus is privy to these things. He actually sees what the Father is doing, which points again to his deity. Jesus sees what God is doing because he is God. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 29 with me. Deuteronomy chapter 29. I think this is a great passage that kind of sums this up in one verse, really. And helps us to know the difference between us and God in this way. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, says this. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Jesus knows the will of the Father. He knows the secret things. He sees what the Father is doing. And his will is aligned perfectly with the Father. Text goes on further later. says that he is one with the Father. They move in one accord. They are always in sync with one another, always working together toward the same end. And again, the text points out all the ways that Jesus and his Father are one. The Father raises the dead. The Son raises the dead. If you don't honor Jesus, you also don't honor the Father. The Father has life in himself. The Son also has life. In himself. Doesn't depend on an outside source for that. The rest of John is very forthright on this past on this same point. Jesus and the Father are one, and they're together in what they do. The Father sent Jesus to do his work, and Jesus is doing the work, and he is able to do the work because he is God. He is able to set free the captive. He is able to give sight to the blind. He is able to make the lame to walk. When Isaiah penned those words in Isaiah 61, he was talking about Jesus. Jesus is talked about in Genesis, in Exodus, in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We could go on. Just as he is throughout all the Old Testament and New Testament because he is the God of the Bible. So why is this essential to our faith? Keep this real plain. This is essential to our faith because this is what the Bible teaches. It's very plain and simple. This isn't one of those doctrines, the deity of Christ, that is open for debate. Because this is a doctrine that is so plain in Scripture that there is no wiggle room here. You cannot deny the deity of Christ and still call yourself a child of God. You cannot do that. There are many who do. And they don't see the deity of Christ as an essential doctrine. And they say, well, we can just agree to disagree on this point. Sure, we can, but this is where we're going to separate. And you've heard me say this before, but it bears repeating so that we make sure we understand this as a group. 
This is what separates us from the cults, like Mormonism, like Jehovah's Witness. This is why we're not one big happy church with them. They're not part of the church. This is what separates us from the Jews and the Muslims. We do not worship the same God as them because they do not worship Jesus Christ. This is what separates us from mainline churches that preach how they're searching for the historical Jesus, whatever that is. The historical Jesus is contained in the pages of Scripture. They should be preaching those. These groups have not only altered the doctrine of Christ, but they worship a false God. And there is no salvation except through Jesus Christ, the one true Son of God. Any falsehoods about them don't make you just a bit different. They make you pagan. So make sure we're clear on that. This is also why it's so important that we preach and teach Christ always. Every religion on earth talks about God helping them in some way. But as Christians, our God became man and dwelt among us that we might be delivered from our desire to save ourselves and to simply have God help us through life. He is not a God that simply helps us. He's a God that picks us up while we were dead in our trespasses. He's a God who delivers us from sin and from death. We need our God to breathe life into us again because we were dead in our sin. We don't just need God to give us advice on things. We need the life that he gives. He is the only truth. He is the only source of truth on earth. We preach Christ because there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. We are dying men and women preaching to dying men and women, and they need Jesus Christ. That is why we have to get it right. Jesus is the Son, or Jesus the Son is God. This is the plain teaching of Scripture. And to follow that up, the Son is not the Father. We need to make sure that we understand that Jesus is not the Father. And this is one of those areas that uh, your friendly neighborhood Bible contradictions guy will often throw at you as an attack because he feels like he's seeing something in Scripture that no Christian has ever thought about before. Maybe many haven't, maybe there's many that haven't thought through it, and that's the truth, but that they've never seen before because Jesus talks about how he and the Father are doing things together, almost seeming like they're the same person. In John chapter 10, we'll read as we study that later, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And it might be tempting for us to take a text like that and run around with it saying, see, Jesus and the Father are the same person. Well, there's a whole group of people that will do just that. And they call themselves oneness. And oneness meaning like they... They believe that God is one person in kind of these three manifestations, the, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And they, they feel like they found some kind of new life in Scripture. Well, this is nothing new. It's a heresy as old as the church is. We read the Nicene Creed this morning. Those men who met in 325 A.D., that's what they met about. The deity of Christ, the nature of God. 
The problem with this doctrine is the overwhelming weight of Scripture suggests that the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are all distinct persons, each with a particular role in creation and providence and in redemption. There's ample evidence here in this passage alone. We see a relationship between the Father and the Son. Them loving one another and the Son doing what he sees the Father doing. You see this kind of relationship with them. But you also see the Father giving a particular role to the Son, which means a few things. First, they can't be the same because the Father isn't now doing a thing that he gave the Son the authority to do. He has given all judgment to the Son, is what the text tells us. The Son has been made the judge under the authority of the Father. Second, you see that the Son is in submission to the Father, now doing the will of the Father willingly, not because the Son is somehow less than God. He's not less than God the Father or less powerful or less able, but because this is the role that he has taken, being subject to the Father for all eternity. So again, the Son is not the Father. They are two distinct persons. And along with the Holy Spirit, they are all God. And understand this to be a difficult doctrine to wrap your head around. And that's okay. It's okay to struggle with the doctrine. It's okay to wrestle with the doctrine. If you're not wrestling with it, you probably think that it's I mean, you probably have simplified it too much. It's a good thing to wrestle with this kind of truth and understand it deeply because God is inexhaustible. He's eternal. And so we can't possibly exhaust the depth of a doctrine like this. However, because of that, this isn't one that we should neglect because it's at the heart of everything that we hold dear as believers. It's, on, it's at the heart of our views of creation. As we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit present in the opening chapter of Genesis, right there at the beginning. It's at the heart of our view of providence. You know, providence, God's governing of all things. The Father governs, the Son intercedes for his people. The Holy Spirit proceeds both from the Father and the Son doing their work. And our views of redemption are, com are incomplete without a right view of the Trinity. We need to understand the role of the Father as he forgives, the role of the Son as he satisfies the Father's wrath, the Holy Spirit as he quickens the hearts of men dead in their trespasses and their sins. Sadly, the church has fallen away from teaching this doctrine, not because it doesn't believe it, or at least in word, they would say, yes, we believe in the Trinity, because many view it as too theological or too deep or too serious. There's no need to get all theological. What I heard one person said to me recently in a, in a Facebook post, there's no need to get all theological on me. Why not? We need to be theological. We need to think deeply about our faith. Because here, in this book of John, 
the book that is written for unbelievers originally, and the book that is so often recommended to new believers as an entryway into biblical study because of its ease of reading and its ease of use, right here in the book of John, we have a full display of the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all of the complexities within. So why would we neglect it? Why would we put it down if this is the book that we put on display and say, this is the one you should read as a new Christian. This is the one that you should read as a gospel of Jesus. As we get to chapters like chapter 10 and chapter 17, we're going to see all of these complexities in play, and we need to wrestle through them. The scriptures talk about this doctrine, and so should we. It should be in our prayers. It should be in our Bible studies, in our conversations. Because to misrepresent the nature of God is to build an idol, which we all want to do anyway. So we have to be careful. The scriptures obviously teach this doctrine from the first three verses onward. And so to help with that, to help with those doctrines, we have our confession, we have our catechisms. These are great primers for that. We have the, the great creeds and confessions of the faith, the one that we read this morning from 325 A.D. These men understood the doctrine of the Trinity. Just read those words. It's not like we've come up with something new in the last hundred years or something. But these men from the beginning of the church have been reciting this truth about our God. And so we would do well to study it and never stop wondering about its complexities. And so lastly, the Son then must be worshipped as God. Look at verse 25 there. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Jesus is not just a prophet who lived a good life a long time ago and had some good things to say. But he is the one whom the dead hear his voice and they live. He was not just a good teacher. He was not just a, a, a good moral guide for our lives. He is not our homeboy. He is the one whom the dead hear his voice and they live. He is the one who called the dead man Lazarus from the tomb and he walked out of the tomb. He is the bronze serpent lifted in the wilderness, and those who looked upon him would have life. He is the one who calls dead men to repentance, and they answer his call, and they walk in him for all eternity. This is what Jesus is talking about when he said belief in him would cause one to be born again. Born again isn't being born again isn't all for the believer, though, because they have this other great thing waiting for them. Turn to Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12. I think oftentimes we want to go to one extreme or the other when talking about our faith. 
But now we see Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. Talks about the second resurrection. Let's read this. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such has never been since there was a nation until at that time. But at the time your people shall be delivered, every one whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to the shame of everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Dan but you Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. As we read here in John chapter 5, we're reading about Jesus calling the dead to life, that many of the dead will come out of their tombs, like it says here, that they will come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is exactly what's written in the book of Daniel. Right here, Jesus is the one who will call them forth. He who was risen from the dead, the first fruits of the resurrection, Jesus Christ, he is risen from the dead to ensure that all people will be risen from the dead. John is saying here, don't marvel at eternal life here on earth, because one day is coming when all the dead will be raised. All the dead will be raised. Some to everlasting life. Some to everlasting judgment, both of which Christ has been given the authority to dish out, life and death. And so what do we do with this? Well, as believers, I want us to look at verse 24 as a qualifier here. Verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Not gets eternal life later, but has eternal life. When does eternal life begin for us as a believer? Right now. We have it, even now. We have our eternal life today. What should that do? It should change the way that we live. It should change the way that we think. It should change the way that we see the world. Because this world is passing away. And the troubles of the world are a faint thing. But we are not. We will last forever. And we will do so at his side, the creator of all things. If we continue to live as dying men, dying to die for all eternity, when we are no longer dying for all eternity, then we should be pitied. I mean, why would Strider, going back to my original illustration, why would Strider continue to live as a wandering ranger when he had all the rights to become the king? For the same reason we do. Because we have trouble believing it's true sometimes. We don't want to accept the responsibility of what it means to be one of God's elect, children of the promise. 
Strider had trouble with that. He didn't want to accept his role. We're the same. Sometimes we would rather this life be the end. But we are God's we are God's redemptive agents in this world. Those who have eternal life now. We should speak differently. We should act differently. Our speech and our actions should season and bring life to everything around us. Every decision that we make, every conversation that we have should be seasoned with the fact that we will live forever. Imagine how much we would be changed if we could actually believe this without any kind of sin holding us down. It would be amazing. So our prayer should be that God will remove the part of us that wants to remain a wandering ranger and help us to embrace our role as children of the King. If you're here and you're an unbeliever, your good deeds, they won't help you when it comes to your standing before God because the scripture says that every deed that comes from an unregenerate heart is evil. And what does it say here about the evil? Those who have done evil, they will be raised to a resurrection of judgment. Jesus Christ, the Savior of all men, the Savior of ones who call upon his name, who hung on the cross, will also be your judge. So answer the call of the Savior. Call upon his name and be saved. Repent of your unbelief. Have eternal life today. So in conclusion, we talked a lot about this doctrine of the Trinity, the nature of Jesus, how it fits into God's economy. And it, and it may be a bit difficult sometimes for us to understand. But again, it's vital to our understanding and our growth as believers in Jesus Christ. A right understanding here not only helps us to worship the Lord rightly, but it also influences how we minister to the world. So our prayer should be for the Lord to help us to that end. To help us to worship Jesus as the one true God. The one that we find in the pages of scripture. So let's go to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, we come to you, our God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father, God of gods, very God of very God. We beg your help with this because we would remain that wandering sheep. We would remain outside the walls of your heavenly home. We would see our own way as right. We would see the life that we have in ourselves as enough. But you offer us eternal life. You give us a gift beyond understanding. So Lord, help us to embrace it. Help us to understand. Help us to live differently in light of what you have given us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.